going to open up our Bibles to Ruth chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read just the first 10 verses. And uh, the, the topic this morning is rather it's a challenging one. I really want to address the nature of saving faith, the nature of saving faith. And I have a little diagram here behind me. Uh, but we, when we look at the actions, the activity of Ruth, we see these different actions taking place. Submissiveness to her mother-in-law, okay? A yieldedness. We see repentance in chapter one. We're going to talk about these, by the way. We see conviction, okay? Behind these things. But all these are an indication of the nature of true saving faith, which is really under debate the last 30, 40 years. And that's what I want to address. And I want to use, not just chapter three, but the book of Ruth, and particularly looking at Ruth's life and her activity, even her work, to show you, to demonstrate that true saving faith, okay, has certain qualities about it. Certain qualities, it's not just a, I believe in these facts of the Bible, that the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, and I just have to simply believe. There are actually qualities that come with true saving faith. So I want to address the, not the content so much as is this Jesus, but the, the nature the quality of true saving faith. I think that we begin to understand that more and more as we go through this morning. And that's why I have these little arrows going both ways. When you, these are what people see. These are actions, okay, attitudes. And what, when we're practicing them, they show and prove that we have true saving faith. Or you can look at it the other way. The nature of faith is that it produces these activities. The real issue is this. Is Jesus just Savior? Does true saving faith limit, limited to knowing Jesus just as Savior and not Lord, or true saving faith, is it belief and trust Jesus as Lord, but also a faith that desires, I mean, as Savior, but desires to follow him as Lord? It's what we call the Lordship controversy or debate. There are some out there that say that all you need to do is to... Uh, agree to some facts about the Bible and then make a decision and say, I believe that. I'm going to adopt those biblical truths in my head and simply, that's going to be, I'm saved. Okay? That is what we call easy believism. Okay? That's trusting Jesus merely as Savior based upon some facts in the Bible about Him. The opposing that is what is, is faith is the, the definition, the nature of faith is, is what's, what do I want to say? The nature of faith is what is, what's the word I'm looking for? No, 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 it's what's at stake here. That's it, I'm sorry, okay? All right? What I think the Bible teaches, this is going to be the background from which we approach Ruth, is that true saving faith embraces Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's really simple. Some people go, no, 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 no. It's just this, and maybe later on in life, maybe, they're saved by just this, but maybe later on they might understand a little bit more what it means to be Lord, but that's not necessary to be saved. Wrong. Say that up front, and I'll explain why later. So let's stand together. Now, I just did that to pique your interest for this morning. I really want you to think. I want you to wow. I want to listen this morning. Ah, okay. Maybe you won't. Maybe some, when I try to explain it, stumble a little bit. But anyway, 
Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 1 through 11. Let's do 1 through 11. Verse 1, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Referring back to chapter 2. Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. So wash your feet, anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not take yourself, make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. To spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether they're rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Then he goes on to explain, however, we got one more relative that's even close to you. We'll deal with that later. Next week, we're going to talk about the kinsman redeemer. This morning is really a takeoff of last week and Ruth and what is the nature of true saving faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, guide us, lead us in your word. Father, you just not command us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also explain in scriptures what that faith looks like, the nature of it, the qualities of it. So, Father, we would be wise to understand more from your word what true saving faith is, what it looks like. So, Father, guide us, lead us this morning. Encourage us. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to be able to discern between true saving faith and the other counterfeits that are out there. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We ask these things for his glory. Amen. Maybe seated. In almost every culture, I would even say every culture, over time, words begin to change their meaning, or they do change their meaning, or they take on different meanings. Now think about that for a minute. And I've noticed this in our own lifetime. You know, various words that used to mean something 20, 30 years ago, now mean something totally different. And we invent words. Now, I'm not talking about words that are invented. I'm talking about words that existed for a long period of time, but have now, over time, have changed their meaning. For example, the meaning of the term, here you go, Christian. Christian. That means Christ follower. We hear about it first in the book of Acts, like around chapter 16. Those were, the followers of Christ were first called Christians at Antioch. Okay. Oh wow. All right. That's my cover. That has never happened before. Sam too. Anyway, let's go on. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? Mike goes, Dorothy, stop. <laughs> I want to get on a roll. Okay, forget that. All right. 
So Christians means to follow Christ. Over the years, that meaning has become more and more fuzzy, unsure. And here, for example, lately, back in the early part of this millennium, around 2000, Mormon sought, the Mormon church, Mormonism sought to be accepted among Christians. They wanted to be part of the Protestant church. They even reached out to certain Protestant leaders to say, hey, we, we want this. And for example, John MacArthur was one who responded back and let you repent of your doctrine of theology. I got to have anything to do with it. Okay? So you, you see the, the temptation. Here's one way that words lose their meaning, like Christian. You begin to broaden it. In order to be more inclusive, you want to, you want to broaden the meaning of the word. Roman Catholicism. Do they call themselves Christians? Yes. Here's the question. Do we agree on what the gospel is? No. And yet they too. So what's at stake when we talk about the word Christian is Christianity, what we believe, the, the gospel itself. Reminds me of Matthew 7. I'm just, if you want to write this down, you can. But this is a verse that came to my mind studying this week when I was thinking about this issue to introduce you to the topic of faith. We'll get there in a second. But in the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, we're getting there. In chapter 7, Peter says this, 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. See, what we try to do, what some people try to do is they broaden the gate so more can walk through. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility. That's not the evangelist or the pastors or church. That's not what we do. We keep the gate, the gate. That gate alone is Jesus Christ. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Does that make sense? We shall not broaden it to be more inclusive. Well, the Catholics want to add works to Christ. No, that's not the gospel any longer. The Mormons want to add some of their theology to be accepted. No. And I won't get into all that. It's a whole other couple of sermons describing them. But it's not just those two, but there's other groups as well. Now, I won't say all that because of this. I want to look at the term faith. Faith. It's become very fuzzy. So I just use Christianity as an example, but look at faith for a minute. That's what we're going to look at the rest of this morning. It's become very fuzzy in our lifetime. The term has become watered down. Or I like to say reduced to nothing. Whereas we expand the word Christianity to the point where it becomes meaningless. Let's take the word faith, okay? And we reduce it to where it doesn't become what it is. Okay? What some have done is they've reduced it to nothing more than appropriation or adoption of facts about Christ. Yes, they come from the Bible. I remember growing up, I believed Jesus, I believed the Bible, and it was just some facts I had jumbled in my mind, in my head, and I, I actually believed them, I adopted them. If you would ask me at whatever age, I'd say I was a Christian. But did I ever talk about the substance of faith? Did I ever talk about the nature of faith, the quality of faith? That's what's often absence in conversations with people who use the terms for the term faith. You hear us use it flippantly. We, we just talk about it naturally. But do we ever talk about what it is, what it looks like? How does the Bible describe it? What is its very nature? 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but over the last 30, 35 years, there's been this great debate over the nature of true saving faith. Within evangelicalism, I'm not about without, within evangelicalism itself. Not so much the object, like it's Christ, you know, in Christ, but what is the nature, what are the qualities of it? How do I know that I have true saving faith? So the argument isn't who the object is, it's Christ, it's what is the nature, what does it look like? Does it produce anything outwardly? How does it manifest itself? Okay? On the one side, some say faith is merely an appropriation of a promise of eternal life. For instance, all one needs to do is believe. Agree with what the Bible has to say about Jesus and God. And if I do that, if it's merely a mental exercise and I mentally agree with it, therefore I am saved and I have eternal life, period. That's what I would label easy believers. Does the Bible teach that? That's the question. Some say yes. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for commitment. There's no need for submission. There's no need for perseverance. There's no need for change. There's no need to count the cost. Simply agree and profess that you believe what the Bible says about Jesus and you're saved. That's that one side. On the other side, there's those who say that the nature of true saving faith is more than just agreeing to some facts about the Bible. And this is what your elders hold to. Okay? We believe that to trust Jesus Christ as Savior means that you will follow Him as Lord. That you would not treat Him as an insurance policy in your back pocket and flash it at the very end when you die on the deathbed. That you begin showing your belief today when you first believe. Okay? And we'll look at what that is. So on the other side, there's others who say the nature of truth is more than just an intellectual acceptance and adopting of certain Bible teachings. It goes beyond, it includes that, yes, obviously it includes that, but it goes beyond that. It includes a commitment to follow, conviction of sins. It includes conviction. We have people say they have faith, but they have no conviction today. We have people say, I have faith, but they never repented of any sin or sins. They don't follow Jesus. They go to church every once in a while. But praise God, we're blessed with a group here with a body of believers that really don't show me that. I'd be preaching a lot harder. But again, I never assume for one moment, no matter what church I've ever been a part of, that everyone is necessarily saved or born again. I think any pastor who has that attitude it's a bad attitude. It's a wrong attitude. Does that make sense? So sermons like this can be a little tough, hard to swallow, because they're self-examining, so to speak. When we talk about these characters by looking at Ruth, we're gonna, I, I sit there all week and go, uh-oh, where's that one been lately? <laughs> what about this one? So let me put a little caveat here. We are not talking about perfection. We're not talking about perfectionism. It's not about being perfect. It's going about the right direction. It's about growing and maturing. So when you look at these, you ask yourself this question, not that I have all these qualities this morning or yesterday, but do I see these qualities, this nature of faith developing in my life since I first believed? Does that make sense? Look at the long haul. Don't look. It, what I, you know what happens to me when if I would look at these qualities and I go, and I just go, where are they all at today or yesterday? 
Uh-oh, I get threatened big time. Sometimes they're not always that evident. But when I look over the last 30, 40 years of my Christianity, my walk with the Lord Jesus, since I've been born again, I can see a little more clear, yes, that's how you've been developing this one and this one and this one, giving me assurance that I truly am born again in that true saving thing. Does that make sense? So be comforted with that. And when you find yourself falling short, all you do is do what the Word says. Because it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. The truth is not in you. If you confess your sins, what do you do? You go to where your righteousness is. Anybody know right now where the righteousness of God is? Where is it right now? Where, where is the righteousness of God that gets you to heaven? Where is that pure, holy, righteous God right now? You know where it is right now? It's with God. It's with God. It's with Him right now. It's right next to Him. It's in front of Him. It's His Son, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the righteousness of God is right there with God, so that no matter where you go, Whatever you do, it's right there in front of him because it's his only begotten son. He is the righteousness of God. You cannot add to it and make it better. You cannot dilute it and make it worse. That is the righteousness you need to be just before God, to be his child. It's there. And I love that. I can't change it. I can't make it any better. Can't make it any worse. See, it's based on the righteousness to pure, unadulterated, holy righteousness of Christ. When He is our founder, He is my righteousness. Frees me up to be able to talk about this. Because we're going to be talking about the practical righteousness that true saving faith produces in us. But no matter how well we do here, it never saves. The righteousness of Christ saves. This is the practical righteousness. This we're going to be talking about sanctification. See, when God saves you because you trust in the righteousness of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, He rose from dead because of His righteousness. You know that His blood covers all the sins you've ever committed for all time. This is gospel, folks. Because of the gospel, you are justified. Now, as children of God, what do we do? We talk about what it means to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about trusting Christ as Savior, yes, it's His righteousness that saves me. It's His blood that was shed, covers my sins. This is the gospel. But true saving faith doesn't stop there with Jesus as Savior. It today wants to follow Him as who? Lord. This is justification. This is sanctification. And this is a package of salvation. Salvation is inclusive of both, not just one. To be born again, to be saved, means Jesus is not only Savior, but He is Lord. And that's what we're talking about this morning. When we examine the life of Ruth, we're looking at the externals of her life, those qualities, to, to show us the indication of what that, that, that nature of true saving faith is like. Okay? Does that make sense? I had to say this up front. I'm challenging you, but understand this is where we're at. We're going to be talking about this part. But Jesus is Lord only makes sense when Jesus is your Savior. Okay? This is not where he's Lord and when I follow him, that's added to his righteousness. I make it, I make it better. I add to No. What we do today, no matter how well you follow Christ, does not add one iota to your justification, to his righteousness. 
It is pure, holy, and complete. We're simply saying that him as being Lord is a thank you for him being Savior. One of the ways to put it. God, thank you for saving my soul. The only reasonable response to such a great salvation is for me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow after you. Romans 12.1 I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? Based upon 11 chapters of describing salvation primarily with some say, the only reasonable response is this, is to, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. By the way, number three is follow him in that list, right? You can't follow him unless you do the first two. Deny yourself and take up your cross. That's what's necessary to what? Follow him. So if I go around saying, I follow Jesus, I follow Jesus, i got to look back and go, well, where have I denied myself? Am I taking up my cross? And by the way, Jesus tells his disciples, Daily. Daily. Okay. So, let me go on. The debate is over the nature of faith. Okay, the nature of faith. Let me explain some reasons why this is so important. I really want to, today, for us, right now, first, the Bible warns of counterfeit faith. All you have to do is go to the little book of James in the New Testament. Then there's other words. I just picked this one out. There's other sections of scripture that warn, but James is so clear on this. He talks about empty faith. He talks about demonic faith. All you need to do is go to chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but have no works? Can that faith save him? And the way the Greek is written, it expects the answer, no. It can't. What he says is faith without works is a dead faith. So we know there's counterfeit faiths out there. It might look good. Someone might profess and say they believe, but their absence of any doing any works. And it's faith. Now think about this. It's hard to kind of grasp what's the place of faith and what's the place of works. Okay? We put it in a nutshell. It's faith alone that saves. But this faith that saves doesn't come alone. This might help you. Write down next to James chapter 2, verse 14, 15, 16. Write down Ephesians. Write down Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Okay, listen to these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not a result of works. Faith alone saves. So that no one boasts. Your works have nothing to do with you being just before a holy God. Now look at verse 10. Having in verses 8 and 9 talked about justification, he says, but you're going to show it. I want you to show it. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it's faith alone that saves. But that faith that saves doesn't come alone. God has God justifies you and saves you by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then God says, now that you're my child, i got things I want you to do. Exercise your spiritual gift, comforting others, sharing the gospel, works in general. Okay? All right. The Bible warns of counterfeit faith, empty faith. Even the faith demons believe, and yet they shudder. That is a dry, cold orthodoxy. They know God. They've got good theology. 
They do. Think about it. The demon, Satan has a great theology. He knows God. Right? You go to the first chapter, a couple chapters of the book of Job. God said, come here. And they talk. He knows. You think he might even know the Bible? You think he knows the end of the story? Yes, yes, yes. He's not a dummy. So he knows the facts about God. He knows the character of God, the attributes of God. He sees him in action. But he doesn't have true saving faith. He has a dry, cold orthodoxy. It's not enough to have the right theology or good theology or sound theology. So you see, James is, shares with us there are other kinds of faith out there that are not true saving faith. Here's another one. We are told to examine our faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, and 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we are told to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Before communion, we examine ourselves, our faith. It is an ongoing process for the believer to do that. He's, not, he's writing to those who profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's an exercise. How comfortable are we talking about that exercise? I get threatened. What do you mean? I'm not saved? No. I just want you to mature. I want you to grow. I want you to move forward. A pastor should be like a father who's going to push you. Dads, what you do with your sons. Mothers, with your you want to push them. Because you know they're going to be 18. You know, they're going to be, you know you want them to get married. And you want them to be good, sound, young men and women, mothers and fathers, and even do better things. So you push them, you encourage them. We're not their best friends. God is not your best friend. He's your heavenly father. And he's always there pushing you to move forward, to grow and to mature. That's why Peter, at the very end of his second epistle, says, I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He's pushing his readers to move forward in their walk with Christ. And that's what we have here. Here's another reason why. Assurance of salvation can only come from a proper understanding of the nature of true saving faith. If we don't get this right, we're... How do we know we're saved? Right? How do we know? The book of 1 John is all about this. In the heart of it, he said, I wrote these things, chapter 5, verse 13, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. And throughout that book, he talks about the nature of true saving faith, and he narrowed it down to two points. In chapter 3, verse 10, practicing righteousness and loving the brethren. He kind of narrowed it down. He says, that's what you look at. That's what you look at. Are those things true and real in your life? Because that's how you know if this is real. If you actually have true saving faith. I wish the church would wake up to this one truth right here that we're talking about. Finally, how one views faith. Listen to this. How one views faith will ultimately determine how one lives their Christian walk. How we view faith will determine how we walk, how we live. That's why this is so important. Why it's so important. Add to that finally, we haven't got to the sermon yet. Oh, we're in trouble this morning. I'm going to fly through the points. Anyway, introductions are so important. <laughs> Let, let's move forward. I just want to skip some notes here. 
Alright, talk later if you want. Let's look at these. Looking at the life of Ruth, okay? And I'm going to go to chapter 1 and chapter 2, 3. This is going to be kind of going in throughout the book of Ruth in these four chapters. First of all, she her faith was marked by conviction. Number one, conviction. Her faith was shown as being this conviction. It was one of the qualities. What we're doing here is faith is like a diamond. You kind of hold it under a microscope or you hold it up and you look at the nature of that diamond. What are the different cuts and everything? What does it really look like close up? That's kind of what we're doing here. We're looking at faith and we're examining it through the lens of Scripture to say what is the nature, what are the qualities of true saving faith? So number one, looking at the life of Ruth, we see that her faith was marked by conviction. Go back to chapter one. It's right here. Verse 16, 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, her, her other daughter-in-law didn't have that view in mind. It really doesn't go there, but she went back. This is, this is Ruth, a Moabite. Okay? This is Ruth, a Moabite. She had never been to Bethlehem before, as far as we know. When Ruth and her husband's sons moved to Moab, then they married the daughters. So Ruth is going to go with Naomi to a place she's never been before under a god. I think she probably learned it through maybe Naomi. And a little like her, her, her father-in-law until he died. Now think for a minute how powerful Naomi's testimony might have been even though she was hurting. We know in chapter 1 she was hurting. And she just said, you know, God is... He, he's what... He, uh, He's dealt bitterly with me, verse 20. He's witnessed against me, but never do you see Naomi forsaking God outright. And we say those things when we're hurting, don't we? We read the Psalms. You go through some of the Psalms, and Psalms of Lament, and that psalmist is in such grief, he's in such heartache, that at moments we say those dumb theological comments, like, God, you've left me, when the reality is he hasn't, but we're in so much pain, it clouds the truth sometimes, right? Isn't that comforting? But God is still there, even though we feel he's gone. I think Naomi would have fit that very well. Lost her husband, lost her sons, had now come back, and she's saying, you know what, I can't do you any good anymore, daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law. I can't do you any good, so go ahead, go, go, go. And here you had Ruth going, no, stop talking about it. I am committed. I have a conviction. You think Ruth would have gone back with Naomi if she didn't have conviction? What does it mean? It means to cross-examine for the purpose of being convinced. That's what the Greek word means. To cross-examination, you investigate, you examine to come to a conclusion. And once you do, that's it. That conviction will begin to guide your decision-making. We need conviction today. What are the, what are the qualities of truth-saving faith? Is there's conviction. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, or write it down. Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Where does this conviction come from? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So the more you're in the Word of God, the more your faith is going to be strengthened. The more your faith is strengthened, the more you're going to be a man, a woman of conviction. So when the world tells you to go one way, you're going to stand still and stand on the Word of God and not follow. Amen? Amen. 
I love that. Faith is the assurance. It's a deep trust of things hoped for. The Bible says Jesus is coming again. Do you have deep trust in that? Is it a conviction? What does that mean? It means, though it hasn't happened, I'm going to live today as if it already has. Even though it hasn't happened yet, I am so convinced of it, it's so factual, that I'm going to live today as if it already has. I know he's coming, and i.e., he's coming today sometime. The imminent return of Jesus Christ for his church. We need to live as if the rapture is going to happen this afternoon every day we get up. Amen? What's that doctrine for? It's to encourage and push us towards godliness and following Jesus, knowing he's coming again. His conviction. Notice how, and then chapter 11 unfolds with all this activity of Old Testament saints who, based on this conviction, they, they did all these things for the glory of Christ. But notice how this chapter ends in verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, a faith which is also characterized by conviction, beginning in verse 1, did not receive what was promised. They were had a conviction of what was yet to come, and they lived each day as if it was going to happen right then at that moment. They gained approval through the faith, did not receive what was promised. And the verses leading up to this, they died. They were martyrs. They suffered. They were persecuted. What keeps a man or a woman persevering and enduring through persecution and suffering? It's called conviction. And the Word of God is true no matter what anybody says. And not that it's just, I believe that it's true. I believe it so, so, so much. I want to walk it. I want to do what it says. As James says, be doers of the word, word not merely what hearers only. Who delude themselves? It's not mere orthodoxy. So, one of the things we learned from Ruth is she had a faith that was marked by conviction. Marked by conviction. Or she never would have gone with Naomi. Never would have. And it wasn't she followed Naomi. She goes this, and your God will be my God. I believe this was her point of conversion, so to speak. In verses 16 and 17. In other words, it also shows she was repentant. We'll go on. Which actually leads to number two. Second, her faith was marked by humble submission. Humble submission. And that's shown in a number of ways. Number one, I just mentioned repentance. But it's also shown in that she listened to Naomi's counsel. In chapter 2, verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the maids. And that's exactly what she did in verse 23. Ruth listened to Naomi's counsel. She did it again in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We read this morning, verse 6, 7. So she went, so she said to her, all that you say, I will do. One of the nature, one of the marks, one of the qualities of true saving faith is humble submission. We're told in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, be submissive one to another. We're called to submit and yield to those in authority over us. Right? That is one of the qualities that's so lacking in the church today. Is this attitude of submissiveness. Humble submission. You know, if you have a submissive, humble spirit, you're going to be teachable. Prideful person, you don't tell them what to do. They ain't going to listen. 
So think about what humble submission looks like a little bit further, a little bit deeper. You have a teachable spirit. I love people with a teachable spirit. And that's a spirit that never ends, by the way. I pray that I'm teachable at 80. I still want to learn things from God's Word or from people who spend time in God's Word. Right? You know why I want you to spend time in God's Word? So maybe God's teaching you something and you can tell me about it so I can learn. Oh, we live in a day and age where you have a doctor of theology or you're a pastor. You can't tell them what, you know. Oh, it's false, by the way. Pastor, doctor, okay? <clears throat> Believe me. On Tuesday mornings when I'm with men, they're talking. We're going through Bible study. And there are times when they say things and I go, man, that's insightful. I just learned something. Need it. So number one, her faith was marked by conviction. Number two, her faith was marked by humble submission. This is illustrated with a relationship with Naomi. And when Naomi gave Ruth counsel, Ruth listened to it and she followed through with it. Let's go to number three. Her faith was marked by loyalty. I like to call it loving devotion. Loyalty as loving, not just I'm devoted, loyal, but I'm lovingly. Because I want it. I'm not loyal because I have to be. I'm loyal and devoted because I want to be. I actually love the object I am loyal to. So you're not forced. Does that make sense? It's a natural outflow of being a new creature in Christ. You're a new creature. You have a new heart. And by the way, the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about what? The new covenant. I will give you a new heart. And that's going to come by the Spirit. Next verse, the Spirit will indwell you. And I have a new heart, which means I had new capacity. And that new capacity, that new disposition is to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that love is that it's not only Savior, but part is He's also Lord. I want to follow after Him. You see that? And so Ezekiel chapter 36, as well as Jeremiah, prophesied the new covenant. And that's where we find ourselves today, beloved. <clears throat> we are the new covenant church. And we are to be marked by loving devotion, not only to Christ, but to Christ's body. That means each other. Amen? Seriously. And that's such a hard thing to do because we're so busy. I don't have time for you. I, I really want to and I'd love to, but I don't have the time. Let me, let me tell you something. It's not a matter of that. Because what we do is what we love the most at that moment. Think about it. You've heard me use the Baskin Robbins 31 flavor of ice cream illustration, and yet I want to lose 10 pounds, 25, 30 maybe. So you walk through a mall. <coughs> Are you with me? So I have two desires. I, have two. I love ice cream, but I love to lose some weight. And I'm walking by that Baskin Robbins store, that ice cream store, and that's my weakness, but I love ice cream. And as I'm walking by, I got a conflict of interest. Conflict of two loves. It's going to be ice cream. Am I going to walk by and ignore it? Or am I going to stop and spend a couple bucks and get that ice cream stick? Well, what I do at that moment shows what I love the most at that moment. Right? You know, true love makes time. Let me say that again. True love makes time to be with one another. True love makes time to be with Jesus. And that's one of the marks of true saving faith. It's loving devotion. 
Look at this is illustrated by Ruth herself, but she always stayed by Naomi's side the whole way through the story. Always stayed by her side. Look at verse 10. Her reputation was before her in verse 11, but look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Then he said, May you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether they're rich or poor. In other words, they, they recognize this, that she was devoted to Naomi. If she had her only her own self-interest in mind, and his Ruth, she'd have gone after young men and married and had her own life. But she had loyal, loving devotion to Naomi. What a beautiful picture that is for the church today, towards the Savior and towards one another. And her actions showed it. Her actions showed it. You know what love does? It prioritizes, doesn't it? Love actually prioritizes. God, I, I have a kind of a, my own little thing I've written years ago. It's my priorities. And number, I didn't have a number one. The first paragraph is it's God. It's God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I didn't have a one, two, three, four, and him being one, uh, he was just the top, was because after him, he is the one that gave me my order. Number one, family. Break that down with my wife over my children. Listen, parents, you need to communicate that your wife and your husband are a greater love, if not a different love, than the one for your children. That's marriage. That's what God ordained. They're going to leave and cleave one day. And you need to be a model of what that's to look like later on for them when they get married. Right? How many marriages do you know that have been built around the children so that when the children leave, the marriage falls apart? Loving devotion. Then you go on. Okay, what's my next priority after family? And that'd be uh, you know, my wife and my children. The church is there. And I really have a hard time between family and church, to be honest with you. They kind of like flip back and forth a little bit. But here's why I put family number one for me. Because if my family falls apart, I disqualify myself from being a pastor. I'd have to resign. That's why. So that's why I kind of shoved that one up top. But it's definitely related to number two, the church, which is you. That makes sense. And then you go on. Anyway, loving devotion. Naomi had her, Ruth had her priorities in line. Let's go to number four. This is in verse 11. Her faith was also marked by moral excellence. Her faith was marked by conviction, humble submission, loving devotion, number four, moral excellence. Look at verse 11 of chapter three. Now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For this reason, all my people in the city know that you're a woman of what? Virtue, of excellence. Your reputation's gone before you. They've been watching you. They've seen your decisions. They've seen how you treated Naomi. They've seen your hard work. They've seen your loyalty. They've seen your conviction. Here's a, they're going, here's a Moabite woman. She looked everything for, 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 for this. Wow. Screams loudly. Moral excellence, a woman of integrity. And notice she maintained it. And go back to verse 10. You have shown your last kindness to be better than your first. Last, first, your kindness has grown. You become more and more kind as time went on. You're maturing. People are watching you what? Mature. And I love it, virtue and moral excellence. This is over and over. I don't know how many, I got so many verses here. Don't worry. Well, just have to pick one top of my head. I've been trying uh, to memorize First 
Second Peter chapter one, verses three through eleven, uh, three through nine. Okay, it talks about how God has given us divine powers, given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In Christ, we are given everything we need to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's, he's always equipped you. The Word of God, the church, you know, spiritual gifts. He's giving you the mind of Christ. You're born again. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You're involved. So he's giving you everything you need. Now notice what he says after this. Here is now your responsibility with these things God has given you. Verse 5. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply what's the first one? Moral excellence. Moral excellence. Virtue. Integrity. Okay. You say you got saving faith? What does God want us to do? He wants you to supply moral excellence as one of them. And he gives this list of seven. And in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, in other words, you keep growing in knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In perseverance, godliness. You see the picture here. In other words, God's saying, I've adopted you. You're my child. You've been saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Now I've given you, now that you have a new last name, Christian, i got responsibilities for you because you're mine now, God says. Listen, my intent is not just to get you home to heaven. When you die, I'm not just your Savior, but I am your Lord. And here's, as your Lord, what I want you to do. I want you to supply to your faith these things. Notice what he says in verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. What's he saying? If you're not doing what he says, if you're not focused here, following Christ as Lord, then you've really forgotten what it means to be saved. That's what he says. We were saying, for these qualities are yours, verse 8, and are, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we are focused here, we become fruitful from the Lord Jesus Christ. And those what he says, for he who lacks these qualities, if you're not focused on them, if you're not focused on living for Christ and following him in your sanctification, then you become blind or short-sighted, short-sighted having forgotten his purification is for us. Wow. Verse 10. Well, therefore, bring it all together. Listen to this. Be all the more diligent. You like that word? It's repeated there in verse 5 and again in verse 10. Be diligent. Make every effort to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Whoa. What's he saying in verse 10? Hey, time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. <clears throat> He's saying this. You want to know if this is real? You want to know if you have true saving faith? Then focus. Focus on these things. Which means focus on following Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? Because we have as our number one priority his glory. His glory. Living, saved. Saved to exalt Jesus. And only those who are pursuing Christ and following his Lord can, can exalt Jesus Christ, have the fruit to do that. Isn't that why we're saved? You see, a man-centered gospel says God saves you just so you can get to heaven. It's all about you getting to heaven. Wrong, false, that is not biblical Christianity. That is not biblical faith. True, saving, biblical faith that God saves us for His glory. It's for His glory. We get up for His glory. 
We have a family for us, Lord. We have a job for us, Lord. We have a vacation for us, Lord. We want to do all things for the glory of God. Amen? Here's the fifth one. Perseverance. Number five, her faith was also marked by perseverance. And this is this kind of strings throughout the whole story of Ruth. The whole story of Ruth. She got kind of, that's again in verse 10. I just meditated on verse 10 of chapter 3. And I love that phrase. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men. You've endured, you've persevered. You could have gone that direction, but you showed your loyalty, your, your loyal devotion, and you endured in your relationship with Naomi. And people have recognized that. Perseverance means that we grow up and we mature. We endure for that very purpose and that very reason. First Peter chapter 1. Write that down. First Peter, we just had second Peter. Let's go back to first Peter chapter 1. Listen to these words. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to the living hope. He's caused our salvation. He's the cause. I'm not, you're not. Okay? He causes our salvation. He gives us the faith, the grace to believe. Period. He's the cause. The ultimate cause. And we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to attain an inheritance. So here we are today and here's these promises of God, still yet future. Okay? Notice this. And we go on. Having obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and the Father will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. Guess what? You have things reserved right now, this moment, in heaven for you. There are things that God has personally in heaven right now reserved for you. Jesus said, I go prepare a place for you. So part of that would be, He's got a place for you. My kingdom, there's many mansions. Verse 5, meanwhile, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right now, before God is protecting you for that moment. He's protecting you. You are secure in Christ. You cannot lose your salvation. Okay? There's protection right there. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. And this faith endures. It perseveres. Now, listen to verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice in this inheritance that awaits you. You rejoice in God's protection. You rejoice in all those things mentioned in 3, 4, and 5. In this you greatly rejoice. You rejoice in such a great salvation. Even though now for a little while you're hurt. That's my little contemporary phrase. Notice what it says. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You might be hurting right now. You might be hurting right now with your family, situations, a job, at work, whatever. But you can rejoice because God has reserved in you for with you an inheritance. It's waiting for you. So here's the purpose of the point, verse 7. Here's the purpose statement. So that purpose, the proof of your faith. And the idea here is refining, refining. The reason that the stress, the reason that stress, the reason that trials in your life is to refine your faith. Like gold. I used that illustration not too long ago. Remember, you're, you're digging out gold and they put it under a hot, hot, hot flame. And all the impurities begin to fall off the gold so what's left is pure gold. See, that's what God does with your faith. And he uses trial. The trials in your life are like flames to gold. 
Trials are to you in the hand of God, being a child. He uses them to conform you into the image of Christ. To make your faith stronger. To make it more pure. Amen? Being more precious than gold. Oh, I love it. Verse 7, which is perishable. See, gold is perishable, even though tested by fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Take a picture of the end of verse 7. It's all about getting you ready. It's all about getting you ready for when you meet Jesus face to face. Today is a part of getting ready to meet Jesus face to face. It's going to happen. If we have that conviction that every day we'll spend time with the Lord, we'll understand God's purpose for everything in our life is to get us ready for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, I am not ashamed. Because you want to hear the words, thou good and faithful steward. Steward of the gospel. Not just the pastors are stewards. We're all stewards of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, number six, her faith is marked by work. Her faith is marked by work. This is Ruth. Back in Ruth, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. You see, over and over again, Ruth was a woman of action. She had works. Her work was going out into the fields, right? Her work was listening to Naomi, going out to the fields, and working. You see that again in chapter 3, verse 6. So she went out down to the threshing floor and did according to all her mother-in-law had commanded. And then that evening, after the big party, okay, there would be a big threshing party. They'd take the wheat and the barley and they would shake it in the evening. Because in the evening when the sun sang, there was more of a breeze. So the breeze would, would take the dust away and what would fall would be more of the barley or more of the wheat. And so that's the time they did it. And they also celebrated a little bit. We know that. We had a merry heart. Okay, that's kind of a celebratory time celebrating the harvest because God gave it to them. So she was faithful to the end. We see Ruth working over and over again. And beloved, that's the whole point of James chapter 2. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. God has a work he wants us to do, or works. This could differ from person to person, but it'll all be under the heading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What kind of activity are you involved in? And I don't mean just outreach. What about inreach? Are you involved in the activity of loving others in the body? Being available? Being there? We organize our time for the sake of those in the body of Christ? And then we just take a step back and say, hey, do we also organize our time to, for people outside the body of Christ to be a witness to them? It's kind of like what it means by work in a very general category. Very general category. It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves does not come alone. It's accompanied by good works. God is for ordained for us to walk in. Are you walking with some good work? Are you exercising your spiritual gift? Convicting, isn't it? Praise God, it's convicting. You know what? When it stops being convicting, then I'm no wonder if the Holy Spirit's working anymore. Because according to John chapter 16, Jesus says, I will send you a helper, and he will convict you concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We need conviction, beloved, and it comes from being in the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And the first place we need to yield it, for me, is me, right here. Praise God. May God's Word not come back to a void, but produce the very fruit that He intends for it to produce in the life of His children.